Hi, everybody. Welcome back to uh, this week's episode of Kirk Your Enthusiasm. I think this is episode six, might be episode five. I'm a professional. I know what I'm doing. Uh, this <laughs> week, I have on uh, my friend uh, Ryan Jones. Um, Ryan was a longtime and well, still is a longtime contributor to Slam Magazine. But I got to know him because Twitter told me to follow him way back in 2008, and I didn't know who he was for three years. And as I've become <laughs> more and more into basketball, it occurred to me that, oh, this is the guy whose stories I read in high school when I read Slam and early in college. So this, uh, you know, when I, I, I reached out to him about three weeks ago to see if he might be willing to talk to me, and he said, absolutely. Then it occurred to me when I was, uh, you know, looking through some of some of your tweets that you are uh, probably the biggest Penn State fan I follow. So while I think we should get to um, get to the, the the Dirk stuff in a bit, I really want to start there. But uh, how are you doing tonight? I'm great, man. Um, I'm in Pennsylvania, actually, not far from uh, my alma mater, as you mentioned. And uh, things are good. We're getting a little late summer, early fall heat wave coming through here. And uh, so I'm, I'm very much in like college football mode right now, but I'm already, you know, thoughts already start drifting ahead to the NBA season, which is always fun. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm all good, man. I can't complain. Well, I, I'm, I'm really glad I had you on here. And, and I, I want to start off talking a little bit about Josh Reeds, who, you know, on, on yeah. draft night, most of us in Mavs fandom were pretty annoyed. Uh, not that, you know, Isaiah Roby is, is bad or good. We just didn't know anything who he was. But then right. it turned out within a few hours of the draft, the Mavericks had, uh, I don't remember what kind of contract offer they made him, but they basically had picked up Josh Reeves on their summer league squad. And all the, the draft right. Knicks I follow were super into him. Um, yeah. And, you know, you were on online, you basically, say, you were tweeting a bunch of Dallas stuff saying, these are things I've been saying for weeks. And I didn't really know much about him. I got to watch him play in summer right. league. He seems like a really uh, intense defender. But uh, yeah. so, so what do you, what do you think about him as a player? So I guess the quick context, right. It's Penn state basketball is, is, you know, not a thing that most people pay attention to or, or are aware of as a thing that even exists with pretty good reason. Uh, and I, you know, I've been, I've been, you know, I had courtside seats as an undergrad uh, 20 too many years ago to mention. Um, and uh, you know, so followed it ever since though, right. Still follow the program and I'm friendly with Pat Chambers and the coaching staff and, you know, they're trying to make a, a basketball program in a place that's really never cared about basketball. And Josh was a huge recruit uh, for Penn State um, as far as trying to get these guys. You know, Pat used to be the top assistant at Villanova up until he came here, what it was, seven, eight years ago. Uh, and he's a Philly guy, so he's kind of got this pipeline. And most of the good kids he's gotten have been Philly kids. Josh Reeves was the one exception, um, but a kid with a pedigree, Oak Hill Academy, right, if I'm not misremembering that all of a sudden. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, so uh, just a guy who came here and, and was probably asked to do a little more offensively than he might have been comfortable with, but still was a, a pretty solid offensive player. But really a guy who, who you know, makes his, his will make his money, certainly uh, as, as a defender and an energy guy and a disruptor on defense, um, you know, transition. Uh, offensively he's a great guy in transition he's a finisher uh you know he'll 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 distribute the ball he'll he can run the break he can lead the break whatever but but really defensively is where he's proved himself uh so impressively some of the most instinctive disruptive athletic you name it defensive plays i've seen have been watching him the past four years up here 
Um, he's he's long for I guess I think what are we saying six five officially six four. That's six, what, yeah. Five. And I when I was standing um, next to him in Vegas, I he is a six five. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and so you know he's not he's not kind of the prototype three and D guy because you know I think the prototype these days for that's like what probably six eight right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but he's, he's a long, you know, legitimate six, five, he's very athletic, uh, got great hops, very quick, uh, instinctive leaper. And again, just a guy who looks to kind of wreak havoc defensively. And he had so many steals and, and tip balls and turnovers he forced and, and good big 10 guards and, and good guards, you know, they played out of non-conference as well up here, uh, that he, he forced into really difficult nights. So. I've been saying again. Listen, I've I've made a million awful predictions in my time, you know, writing about basketball. But I've been saying really since his freshman year, uh, well, particularly his sophomore year when they had this really good group of recruits uh, that they brought in from Philly, Tony Carr, who who went last year to the Pelicans, and they got a couple of the guys still left up here. I always thought he was going to be the guy who had the best NBA potential for a long NBA career because of how he plays. I think he can be a great three and D guy. Uh, he, he got a little bit better steadily as a three-point shooter. He's not a great three-point shooter yet. I think he's a good one right now, but I think he'll get better with work, and he'll, I think he'll put that work in. I think he's, he's a smart kid, and he knows what his role can be and how he can make a long career. I think one of, he's one of those guys who recognizes what his place in the league can be, right? And mm-hmm. I think that he's not, uh, he's not at all a guy who's going to need a bunch of touches, who's going to need the ball, who's going to need to like get on the floor and, and shoot as soon as he gets in. He wasn't that guy here. He he sort of had to be a little more of a scorer because they needed it, um, but it's not the kind of guy he is. So he'll be he'll be really really good at coming in, uh, harassing guys, being a great team defender, finishing on the break like I said, and and I think I hope with that work, uh, becoming you know hopefully a very very good if not a great three point shooter and and the kind of guy who can help, uh, absolutely help a team uh, right. at that level. Well, he shot 38% his his junior year. And one of the things that I was told, at least when I asked around, is that a lot of people were surprised he didn't come out after his junior year. Do you know why he stuck around? Like, what was the what was the emphasis there? My, my impression is that he figured he was unlikely to get drafted and that he could help his stock. Um, you know, and, and like any college situation, and certainly a couple of these Philly guys that they had at Penn State who all kind of came from one of the um, – the Roman Roman Catholic program, and there were three or four kids in two classes they got from Roman Catholic High School, which is like a Philly powerhouse. Um, but yeah, he, I, like I don't think Josh was in the situation like Tony Carr when he left the year before. Like he needed to go, he needed to go and have a chance to make some money. I think for his family and stuff. Whereas I don't think Josh was in that position. I don't think he felt like he had to go. And I think there was really a sense that he could come back and get better and help his stock, uh, and and show that he you know show that he had improved and the potential to improve. That's my impression. I'm not not privy to the, the real insight on that. Uh, if there is any other, if there's any more to it, I guess. Right. Uh, they came back last year. Penn state had a reason to believe that they'd be pretty good last year. Um, they ended up just missing out in the tournament, but finished the regular season really strong and, and had a bunch of like two and three point losses in the big 10 early in the season. I think they started out, started Oh, and eight or something ridiculous, but ended up finishing only a couple games under 500 in the league. I mean, they, they were playing, literally like top 10 of the country basketball the last five, six weeks of the season, but they dug such a hole. It didn't matter. So he was a big part of that. Um, and so I think they had, you know, I think he came back in part thinking they had a shot at making a tournament run, which if they, you know, if they'd been awake the first half of the year, they might have. Uh, but also I think he knew he could, he could improve. And I think he did. Um, and again, I think he put himself in a little bit better position. If not, you know, he wasn't going to end up being a first run guy, but to, to be a guy who was coveted, um, 
you know, for a summer league roster spot and a chance to prove himself. Like you said, I think there was excitement among people who really paid attention uh, on the scouting front that he had the chance to kind of be a diamond in the rough. Mm-hmm. And with, you know, the, the out in summer league, I think everyone uh, that was at least, you know, the diehard basketball fans who were watching that, that flotsam of, of uh, basketball were really surprised at how hard he played because I, I watched a number of games where he just has a, he just really seems to have a nose for a ball, for the ball. He he's also, yeah. He's also not afraid of contact, which can sometimes work against him because I think he might have gotten five to seven fouls a game out in Vegas. And I, that, that, <laughs> yeah, that'll probably yeah. be a bit of a learning curve in the NBA for him. But, you know, the Mavericks yeah. have signed him to a uh, to a two way. And I'm going to be really interested right. to see how often they're able to bring him up. Because, you know, if there's one thing that Rick Carlisle digs more than just about anything else, it's that guy it's guys who play really hard. And, yeah. and I think this is an interesting opportunity for him just because the Mavericks are kind of quickly approaching a point where they're going to have to build a team where contracts play a part and a lower, a, a, a lower dollar figure guy, a guy that's on a, you know, a two way deal or, you know, wouldn't shock me if, if uh, next year, I hope he's able to prove himself and they give him, you know, one of those three year deals. He, he does strike me as that, that kind of guy, just a, uh, just from talking to him briefly and then hearing the things you've had to say. Yeah, I think all that absolutely is consistent with my experience with him. I don't know him well, uh, but, you know, I've talked to him a number of times and, uh, and obviously you can watch him a ton and you're absolutely right. A guy who, who goes hard effort is never going to be a question with him. Uh, ego, like I said, as far as needing touches, any of that is not going to be a question with him. Uh, and I think you're right. You know, his physical style, aggressive style of play defensively, you've got to learn to, to be careful with that. So you're not uh, a liability defensively, of course, but, uh, I think you're right. I think Rick Carlisle is going to love a guy who goes that hard defensively where the effort is never in question. The coachability is never in question. Um, you know, he's a guy who's hard on himself, uh, but it's not going to, you know, not going to take plays off, not going to take games off. Certainly it's going to, going to go hard all the time. So yeah, that's, that's why I'm, I'm optimistic about him and, and having a, you know, sort of a respectable NBA career um, and, and really being a contributor. I, I think being able to contribute on good teams is, is something that he's absolutely capable of. Yeah, I'm 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 excited. I'm probably going to be able to catch a few legends games this year. You know, I I just with the way basketball's played now, you know, watching a guy like uh, Costas uh, uh uh gosh, I can't say Giannis's last name, so I'm not even going to try. <laughs> um uh, you know, watching bigs play in in D League and in Summer League is sometimes brutal cuz you can't really tell what guys yeah. are capable of. Um right. but watching guards can sometimes be fun, particularly in the D League because there's the pace is, is often absurd. So you get these like 120 to 140 games. So I, he'll, he'll at right. least have the opportunity to get a lot of shots up. So that's, uh, that's yeah. pretty exciting. Um, before we go to a quick commercial break, I did, you know, one thing I always try to do since I'm, I'm with this podcast, I'm trying to talk to a lot of people who Mavs fans may not necessarily either be familiar with or don't interact with on a regular basis. The Dallas sports market is particularly unique in that with both the Cowboys and the Mavericks, the same general manager ownership groups have been in charge of the teams for like 20 plus 25 plus years or Jerry Jones like right. going on 40 years. So there's often kind of a little bit of a feedback loop with the voices that they hear. So, you know, while we're all utterly in love with uh, Luka Doncic, I, I, I wouldn't mind, you know, your <laughs> thoughts on a, on a, on a Euro guy like him, because, you know, you, you have a lot of experience, uh, you know, talking, you know, with American uh, up and comers over the last, uh, you know, over the last two decades. Yeah. You know, it's funny. So I, I will be fully upfront. I didn't get to see a ton of Mavs games last year. Obviously saw a fair amount of highlights, mostly of Luka. Um, I, I will say, and I, you know, I said it before I was talking about Josh, 
um, you know, I, I've been wrong plenty uh, as far as predicting guys who would pan out and, and who might not. Um, but Luca was a guy coming out of Europe, all the film on him. I'm like, how is he not going to be very good in the NBA? I really didn't get uh, what the questions were with him. I thought if you saw just the way he played, the instinctive way he played the game, you know, I, I hate the Magic Johnson comparison to almost anybody. I grew up a, a Laker fan in the 1980s like that. You know, no one should be compared to Magic. And they're certainly not the same player remotely. But just that instinctive sense of where they are on the floor and where other guys are on the floor and what to do um, was a little bit reminiscent for me. Just a guy who, who at a young age clearly just knew how to play the game. Um, and you see that in the great ones, right? You saw it on LeBron, a guy obviously that was kind of more my era of, of seeing a lot at a young age. Uh, again, not a direct comparison remotely, but just that sense of really knowing how to play, knowing where he is on the court, knowing what to do, know how to deal with defenders, knowing how to make plays, whether it's a pass, a shot, whatever. I, I felt like you saw all that with him uh, in, in his footage from, from Europe. So I just, you know, the sort of intangible things, I thought, you know, I guess there were people, and some of this is still probably the Euro bias, right? Oh, is he a step slow, this, that, whatever. I always thought he was going to be a good NBA player. I don't know if I would have predicted that he would have the rookie year that he did, but I was very optimistic that he'd be good. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing them more. And again, if Josh is, is up, I'll have a, that much more reason to, to search out Mavs games. Definitely. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely a Luca fan. I think he's got a, obviously a very fun game. Uh, and I think he's a kid who, again, the instincts are there. Can he just, you know, can he continue to polish it, continue to polish the shot? Uh, and, and um, you know, with the right pieces around him, I don't see any reason he can't be a one or two guy on a, on a very, very, very good NBA team. Okay. Well, we'll be right back uh, uh, after a message from our sponsor. We're talking with uh, Ryan Jones of Slam. Thanks so much. Guys, thanks for hanging out during the commercial break. This is Kirk Henderson of Mavs Moneyball. This is Kirk, your enthusiasm. I'm talking with Ryan Jones of Slam. We've uh, touched a little bit on the Mavs-centric stuff. Now, as as per the usual with me, I want to really expand. And, I, you know, the first thing I, I would like to talk about, I, I did a lot of digging, particularly in Slam's online uh, archives, which are not even scratching the surface with what, with what yeah. Slam has done over the years. Um you know, first of all, coming across a hard copy of an older edition of Slam, I might as well have been looking for for the Holy Grail. I did have one follower uh, <laughs> shout out to shout out to my friend Maggie, who found me. Uh, I think it's Slam ninety eight, uh, and okay, yeah. uh, and, and, and and sent me pictures of the cover story written by uh, written by Lang, and that was really exciting to revisit. That was twenty eleven after the championship, I think. But one of the things I was really interested with you, and you told me this was that you go you ghost wrote the slam the, the high school diary for the stretch and that included like some really just historical names in terms of you know uh, uh guys that are are relevant you know kind of in the tail end of their careers in some instances but one name in particular stood out is former mav harrison barnes so what what was your interaction yeah. with him like so so the background on the diary and and that you know slam was doing the diary basically almost i don't know if it was from issue one but from the first year in 94 uh, and the very first high school diary writer with Sebastian, I mean, uh, excuse me, huh, was Stefan Marbury, uh, his cousin, oh, Sebastian wow. Telfair ended up doing it later. But yeah, Marbury was the first diary writer. So it, it, it established it very early on. It was, it was part of SLAM. It was something that the folks who founded the magazine, shouts to Dennis Page and that whole crew, uh, they, they wanted that to be a part of it. And we've maintained it ever since. So, um, so yeah, when I was there for like those seven years, basically, we, you know, we, whoever preceded me figured out pretty early on 
you don't want to ask a 17 or 18 year old kid to write something for you <laughs> once a month, right? So like, hey, write 300 words, like, you know, literally a diary about what's going on. So, so it was very quickly established that this would be an as told to thing. So one of the editors, and I handled it for, I don't know, probably five or six years would um, actually no, probably longer than that, seven or eight, I guess. One of the editors would talk to whoever the diary writer was every month on the phone and just ask questions and then sort of form that into into a diary type, you know, as told to first person kind of thing. So it was the kids' words. It was just, you know, formulated in a way that they probably wouldn't have written, or at least we couldn't have trusted that they would, you know, get turned around uh, and written for us themselves. I so, can't believe a 17-year-old yeah, wouldn't hit a deadline. I don't. That, right. That's well, I mean, and, and listen, it was, you know, it's always funny because and some kids were better than others, needless to say, but you know, when you first got them, they were, they were like, kids were excited, right? Because they were like, mm -hmm. oh, slam, like that was a big deal. And, and, yeah. and still is, which is very cool to see. Um, but, if it, but by the end of it, like when you did, what, I think it was technically 10 or 11 issues in a year, because we did the kicks issue. And, um, but so it was like, by the end of it, you're just, you know, they're like, they're comfortable with you, but they're also like, oh, I still have to do this. And you kind of run out of stuff to talk about. So, and then certain kids that, you know, were big name enough that they were getting called by everyone all the time. So it was a bit of a grind. So it, it could get a bit stressful trying to get these kids to come up with something every time. Harrison was great. Um, and Harrison was uh, a kid that we saw, I think I saw him in person. Maybe the only time I saw him in person in high school was out at LeBron's old Nike camp in Akron, what would have been the summer before his senior year. So what, mm -hmm. how far are we going back to now? Uh, oh, or five, five or four, four, yeah. maybe yeah I, I'm, I'm blanking on that right now but let's say oh five for the sake of argument uh so i i would go out to that every year uh in akron to, to lebron camp the nike camp um and he was out there and, and so connected with him i think we probably connected ahead of time but we sort of we would always like you know sort of present it to the player that we wanted to do it because it felt like an honor you know and by that point lebron had done it um, you know, there was, you know, again, Marbury, who was an all-star, you know, not long before that era, we, you know, a lot of high level guys had done it. So it felt like a, we wanted it to be a big deal to, to these guys and, and kids usually took it that way. So I went out to Akron and um, presented it to Harrison and his mom was out there as well for the camp. And they were, he was all about it. And, and even then you kind of saw that um, sort of, um, you know, like intellectual kind of like young Kobe sort of let me ponder all the permutations and potential kind of vibe that, that Harrison's kind of, I think, known for. Um, but I really liked him. And I, I, uh, I very much remember taking his mom uh, to either lunch or dinner at Swenson's, which is like the OG, like drive up oh uh, place in Swenson for like a I've not had Swenson's in years. Oh, you know what I'm, but you, you yes. have, you've been up there. You've had it up it's in? It's so good. My brother lives in, or lived in Cleveland and I made a point to stop oh, okay. there because that Twitter, so Twitter know. is great for recommendations. <laughs> Yes, yes. So Swenson's is the spot that I first found out about from when, when, again, when LeBron was doing the diary, his crew kind of put me up on it. Uh, so, yeah, so I had, had lunch with uh, Harrison Barnes's mother, who was wonderful. She was like the secretary for the marching band at Iowa State, I think. Um, and so got to know her. And and, uh, and then, yes, yeah, so over the course of next year, whatever it was, 10, 10 or 11 times over the course of his senior year, uh, did the diary conversation with Harrison and, and he was cool. He was real cool to deal with. Again, a little bit of a, a detached sort of intellectual approach to things in a way that you don't expect from a high school kid. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. Which again, won't surprise you. Haven't been around him a little bit. Um, but it was cool, man. He was, he was good to talk to. I liked him. And, and he was also one of the rare kids who once he got down to UNC and I, I think this might've been the only kid who ever quite hit us this directly. He was like, Hey, 
you know, after the diary was done, he's like, I was thinking you guys ought to do a cover with us, like the UNC like class, like, and we're like, oh, we don't, you know, I appreciate that. We don't really put college teams on the cover. That's been a rarity for Slam. But I think the way the timing worked out was at the last lockout or something was going on. We ended up, we ended up doing a cover with like the UNC starting five after all. Oh, wow. Um, so like, it wasn't because he said, let's do it, but he'd kind of planted the seed and then things fell in a certain way that, and I'm trying to remember if that was when I had left because I left around that time. That's where I left Slam full time. Anyway, so yeah, Harrison was cool. I've always had, had kind of a soft spot for him. Um, and, um, you know, he's a guy I've kind of gone back and forth, like with some Warriors fans a couple of times that, you know, he's, he was sort of treated by Warriors fans as like the worst person in the world, right? Like he was, he was the cancer that, that like kept them from being great or something like, well, you guys did win a championship with him in your lineup, didn't you? Like it wasn't, wasn't all bad. Um, he just had a rough, so he just yeah. had a couple rough shooting games and he gets pinned he for did. it. And, yeah, it's and how quickly a fan base becomes, you know, the expectations become like for basically perfection, which that Warriors team, obviously the following year kind of teased that out. So, um, but yeah, no, I definitely, I'm, I remain a Harrison Barnes fan. Um, good dude from my experience with him. And uh, yeah, he's still a guy I root for, absolutely. Well, I got a million questions written down and I'm only going to be able to get to a few of them because I don't want to take up too much of your time. But, <laughs> I'll try uh, and do shorter answers if I can. No, no, this is great. This is great because one, it gives me a reason to invite you on later if there's an opportunity. There you um, go, there you go. So I, a friend of the pod, Ben Collins of NBC News, basically suggested in My the guy. I and, love that uh, dude. Which, you know, his story of coming into media, he's told it on a different podcast. I'm going to have to have him on. Yeah. Is, is really incredible. But uh, we'll, we'll cir- yeah. I'll circle back to that another day. But he essentially told me, he said, Kirk, you know, one of the things you got to ask in the broadest terms possible was, you know, during the the cover photo shoots, he he said, as far as he knew, what would happen is is that the athlete might show up, you know, take some photos and then kind of hang out with you guys for a while. And so the first uh, uh, issue that Dirk was on was uh, Slam 61 in June of 2002. And you yep. were there. You were there during that time, right? I was. I did not do that story, but I was at the magazine. Then. Yeah. So did, did, have you been able to, were you able to spend like any time with Dirk during any of those, uh, during any of those sorts of things? What do you know about, Not, what do you know about the old German war horse? <laughs> my, so my Dirk, like direct knowledge is probably somewhat limited compared to like a guy like Lang Whitaker, who you mentioned. Sure. I think Lang probably spent more time around him. I did spend a little bit of time around Dirk. Um, and all my impressions were always positive. I mean, it, nothing that would, surprise you right that he was kind of the low-key dude who was funny but uh, you know everything about him was kind of subdued usually um you know certainly in a public setting like that alan paul who was a long 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 time slam contributor and a great dude alan paul wrote that cover story with the headline dallas cowboys which was sort of a team story on that mavs team Mm -hmm. uh, highlighting among others mike finley of course nick van exel of course eduardo nahara of course what a great uh, team oh my god a young Steve Nash gets like six billing on this team. From Buckner, <laughs> so, uh, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty, pretty great. Um, so, well, but yeah, no, I mean, like, I don't have any great Dirk stories, unfortunately, but other than all my impressions of him were always positive and he wasn't, you know, from the slam perspective where it was all about newsstand sales, he was not a guy who moved units for us. Sure. Like he was just not that dude, but uh, he was a guy we were happy to give a cover to. And, 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 you know, definitely happy to cover and happy for uh, and all his success. 
and, and he never, you know, he never was one to move stuff. I think uh, one of the one of the two K execs got into a little bit of trouble with my Mavs fan base recently because they're they're doing like a Dwayne Wade legends uh, right. uh, uh, issue or court or something with the game at some point, and and the poor executive stuttered through something. Well, like Dirk's great and all, but I mean, it really comes, you know, back <laughs> to the fact that like like he's he's just kind of a boring but excellent basketball player who's also right. really funny for anybody who's like, like low key into basketball. Right. Let me ask you a really right. strange kind of odd, like specific story of all the, and, and let's exclude online stuff from this of all the things you sure. wrote for slam. What was, what was really uh, your favorite uh, piece to do? Um, I'd probably have a couple of answers uh, that would be different. Um, I mean, the, the LeBron, the first LeBron feature. So we, I, and I'm, this is the one area where I'm always like shameless about bragging about it, but slam had the first Le- national LeBron feature. We were the first people to cover LeBron outside of really Northeast Ohio. Um, uh-huh. You know, SI had the first cover. They beat us to the cover, which we will always uh, retroactively kick ourselves for, but we had the first feature <laughs> like, no, for real, because at the time it was like, we really, we had never put a high school kid in the cover. Cause it was like, we got to sell newsstands, Mag. Like you can't put a high school kid from Ohio on the cover. Sure. Like it's crazy. Now, of course, in retrospect, how could you not? And Zion, I think Zion had a cover or, you know, and LeBron ended up having two covers before he got into the NBA once with us, once it was all said and done. So uh, the first LeBron feature, I went out there at the end of his sophomore year, right when his name was just starting to pop up, you know, sort of, again, this is, this is not, it's not pre-internet, but it's, pre-internet as we know it, pre-social media, pre-YouTube, um, you know, it was, it might as well have been pre-internet based on- Are we talking like tail end of two, like tail end of 2000, maybe? Is that- 2001. Is that... It was spring, okay. spring of 01 is when I went okay. out. There. So, yeah, I went out to Akron and the, the story I always like to tell is that I get out there, I rent a car, you know, I flew in, I don't know if I flew into Cleveland or Akron, Canton, whatever airport, and I rent a car and I go to the campus. It's just like a half mile from downtown Akron. And I pull up and there's a sign out front, one of those little, like you slide the letters in, make the sign. And it says, Welcome Slam Magazine. Like I'm from this little Catholic high school. It was great, right? It was like, oh, that's so cool. And again, we're used to like, you know, people being excited to have Slam come and stuff. So like a year and change later, they pretty famously had signs out front that said, no media, don't come in. Like, you know, that was how quickly it changed from the time we got out there, that first feature to within about a year or so. We got so crazy with LeBron. People who don't really remember that time, it's hard to explain. But mm-hmm. I mean, the circus, the circus dwarfs anything around Zion Williamson. Um, right. You know, I mean, it's not, it wasn't even close. It was not, there'd been nothing like it. Um, so, so yeah. So being able to get to, to see him in that environment before there was any real fame outside of just like locally um, was, was pretty neat and being able to, you know, meet his mom and, and his coaches and his, and all this, like I hung out in the school lunchroom with him and all his teammates and like they were making fun of kids sneakers. Like it was just like this stupid 16 year old stuff to see him at that point. Um, and then obviously to watch what he become and, and what he became and has become ever since was, has been pretty incredible. So, um, and, and I did a three or four more features on him over the years and we did the diary with him as well. So just a guy that I ended up being able to spend a ton of time with right before his sort of world exploded. And then since was, was obviously pretty memorable. One of the other ones that I don't get to think about much, but I went down and again, you'll, you'll not remember this unless you're insane, but I think around 2000, a kid named Jason Conley was leading the nation in scoring at VMI. Does yes. that ring any bell at all? You yes, remember it that? does. But it's VMI. Okay. It's not the name. I remember. Oh, man. <laughs> exactly. 
And this was before I, they had those teams that were averaging like 105 points a game or whatever. It was before mm-hmm. that because they had those teams, I don't know, 10 or so years ago. Um, but yeah, he, he had ended up down there. And I, I don't remember exactly the deal. He, he had like a, might've had a minor learning disability. So that might've affected his test scores and stuff. And, but anyway, just a neat kid, but he ended up in VMI, like, you know, not a place where anyone goes to play basketball on purpose. Right. Right. Um, but he just all of a sudden, and again, it's not a great, SoCon, I think that is right. Not a great league, not great competition, but he was just killing, you know, 30 points a game or something ridiculous. And so I ended up going down to Virginia and spending a day like on the campus at this military school and, and to see him in that context and getting to watch him play, that was just always a memorable one for sort of like the, the opposite ends, you know, of, of like this random high school kid who ends up being the all conquering, you know, world beating, you know, goat candidate versus this just random kid who happened to land at DMI. And if he'd gone to like Duke, you know, maybe he's a 12 point a game kid or whatever, but it just so happened that in this little, you know, magical moment, he was averaging 30 points a game, lead the nation in scoring. And so, that kind of, to me, was a nice, like, sense of the slam experience for me, which was a phenomenal job that I was so lucky to have, where you get to talk to these random dudes who you never hear from again versus, you know, talk to a LeBron or a Kobe or whatever. And uh, But it was all just, like, being able to tell their stories in the context of basketball, and it was just so much fun. So, I mean, I, if you caught me on a different night, I could probably name 10 others, but those those two always stick out. The reason I, the reason I, I, I've been on the internet for far too long, but I spent almost <laughs> all of my high school basketball career lurking and writing on Texas high school basketball messaging boards. Oh, and man. Okay. Uh, I, I graduated in 02. So like Bracey Wright, Darren Williams, Chris Bosch, oh, uh, the year yeah. Chris Bosch, I, I played Chris Bosch the year they went for 40 and 0 and just destroyed teams. So like, I've, how, I've how always had this, uh, poorly. Um, Chris Bosh is just one of the most underappreciated basketball players in NBA. He's just, he's outstanding, but it's like, so I remember, I remember like reading lots of things and that's probably why the name sticks out. Cause I just, you know, kids, you know, anybody under the age of 25, like doesn't know, you know, has never experienced life without the internet, but before you really had to like reach to, to find things, which is why slam was like so much a a, a cultural touchstone for so many people. Um, I remember like friends of mine bringing, I I remember one issue in specific, I remember uh, Vince Carter's dunk contest. And then the, the, like the, the, the years that followed was really like when the NBA blew up in my life. And, and so yeah. I just, I, re- I remember like art class in high school and one guy in particular bringing in this month's episode or uh, uh, slam every month and just thinking how cool it was. Anyways, I shouldn't yeah. be talking cause, cause I'm interviewing no, you. No, it's all good. Um, and, but real quick, I think you reminded me, I think, I think Jason Conley was from San Antonio, the VMI uh, kid. I think he was now that I remember it. Yes, so he was. Montrose Ma- Christian. Yeah. That's exactly why. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's wild. Oh, man. Uh, so <laughs> before I let you go here, and I appreciate you giving me yeah. this much of your time. So we've been talking past the all, amount man. that I asked. Uh, when I first messaged you about this, you said, can I tell a Mark Cuban story? Um, <laughs> the answer is yes. So but I don't, <laughs> I'm not going to get you. He's not your advertiser, right? I'm not going to get. Oh no, there. no, no. He, uh, okay. we have our our site, and he he has a a, a a delightfully adversarial relationship. He has nothing good nor bad to say about us. Um, when okay. I was, uh, uh, he came to a Wizards, or I was at a Wizards game, and I, I brought my son this last year because he's three, and I have brainwashed yeah. him into thinking Luca is really you know the best player alive. And we were sitting kind of <laughs> like front row near the team uh, bench, and and you know Parker was eating popcorn, and Cuban came over and and ate popcorn and chatted us chatted us up. But he's never seen right. my face, so I didn't actually be like, "Hi, I'm that that asshole from the internet." 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it just made me laugh. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> That's awesome. So Mark Cuban, so here's the story. So we're in Philly, and this actually does uh, mention Dirk as well. So we're in Philly, and it was within – so you remember, obviously, when he first bought the team, he was famous for saying, like, here's my email. Like, email me to, like, the whole world, right? Mm-hmm. And so us at Slam were like, all right, we will, we will email you because we didn't certainly have relationships with NBA owners. Like, you know, we had pretty good relationships with NBA PR and, and a number of players and whatever, but we didn't know any owners. So we're like, all right. So I think Russ Bankson at the time, who was the editor, I'm pretty sure he reached out on email to, to Mark Cuban and Mark got back to us as he was wanting to do in that era. Um, and so we had said at some point, like, hey, we should, I don't know if he suggested or we, we probably suggested, but he was like, sure. Like, hey, we should link up at some point, get a drink when you're in New York or wherever. Slam Ops, obviously, in New York. And it ended up being Philly. Russ and I would go down probably once or twice a year. We'd take the train down, uh, the Acela, uh, traveling in style from New York to Philly because it was like a 45-minute trip or something crazy. And we'd go to a Sixers game, right? And we'd try to pick our spots, pick good Sixers games. We'd get credentials. And we'd go see Sixers-Lakers with, you know, Kobe Iverson. We, you know, when Vince was there, Raptors. So we went down when the Mavs were uh, in town to play the Sixers. And we had, again, this is free, certainly social media. I don't know. I mean, well, we were barely texting at that point, right? And like, mm-hmm. what, when, did, when did he buy the team? 2000, 2001, he, whatever He bought the team in 99. Uh, okay, no, 2000. So probably 2000. Because they'd already okay. drafted. So let's say that. Right. So this is 2000. Okay. Yes. Cause Dirk was definitely on the team. So this is, let's say, Oh, it's, it's Oh one. So you're barely texting in Oh one. Right. And so it's not like we were like in constant communication, but we get down there. I think we had told him we were going to be at the game and then we got there and he was hanging out pregame as he always did. And I think Russ went up and introduced himself and he was like, Oh yeah. You know, we, we were the ones trading emails were the guys from slam. And we had some sort of tentative plan to, to talk and link up later. And we're like, Russ and I are like, cool. Cause we were going to go out and drink after the game anyway. That's what we did. <laughs> um, so, so your game happens and Sixers win. And I'll explain in a minute why I remember that. Um, and so we, after the game kind of, we're hanging out, you know, you got media credentials. You can kind of hang out around the court after the game. And we went in locker room, did some interviews, whatever, come back out and we see Mark and we're sort of, and there was maybe one or two other media people who sort of knew him, who we knew we were maybe ESPN, the magazine people, I don't know, but we were like friendly with, and we're sort of joking around with Mark. And uh, he said to, to us, if I remember correctly, he's like, so like, where's the spot? Where are we going? And we're like, uh, <laughs> we're, not, we're, not, we're not from here, but we'll, we'll come up with something. So I think we were like asking, you know, slightly more, because we went to like dive bars and stuff usually. When There's we no were there, Yelp. But, yeah, no, man, it was, it's before, it really, it's like the dark ages, right? Before social media and apps, before smartphones, essentially. It's like, you know, humanity barely existed, right? We were rubbing sticks together to create heat. So, um, so yeah, so we found out. We're like, oh, so-and-so, let's go here. And we told him. We're like, hey, here's where we're going. And meet us there, right? So we know, and I think it was that spot, Continental, which is kind of a Philly spot that used to be trendy and I think is now just okay, I guess. I don't know. Some Philly people can correct this. But we ended up going down there and um, – and, and hitting a spot, and it was, I think, Russ and I, and there was, there was a young woman, if I remember correctly, who was, like, with ESPN the magazine, I think. And so we went there, and we were having drinks, hanging out. And at some point, before too long, Cuban is there as well. He shows up. And he, like, it's just him by himself. So it ends up being Russ and I, my slam colleague, and then this young woman who, again, I think was ESPN the magazine, and then Mark Cuban at a table for four at this, like, bar restaurant place. And 
it was early enough that like, I don't know if anyone in the restaurant recognized him, right? Like, I don't know if anyone saw this guy and went, oh, that's the multi-bazillionaire who just bought an NBA team. So we're saying, we're just hanging out, having fun. It was cool, you know, drinking. And we all were, you know, not getting loaded, but we had a fair amount to drink. And then the place was closing. And just as it was about to close, I don't remember the exact timing, but I'm pretty sure it was both Nash and Nowitzki show up like as they're closing. And, and the, <laughs> one of the few like pretty crystal, uh, crystal clear memories I have of the night is me going from the inside and talking to the doorman who's telling people coming up, yeah, we're closed. I'm like, hey, this is uh, Steve Nash and Dirk Nowitzki. They're on the Dallas Mavericks. They, they just played here tonight. Like, and the guy who owns the team is inside. Like, could they come in? And the guy's like, no. Because they were closed and they weren't going to make an exception for a couple of NBA guys that they really didn't even recognize. Oh, man. And that was in those days. Obviously, you know, we've mentioned it 50 times, the pre-internet days right. when, when, and I've, I've it, like Dirk and Nash and their outings were kind of urban oh, we're legend. legendary. Yeah. You know, they're, and we, we had the photos to prove it, but sadly not from that night. That was one of the great disappointments in retrospect <laughs> that we didn't create a very memorable Nash and Dirk uh, photo op that night. Um, so, so sadly we did not get to hang out with them. They ended up uh, probably going back to the hotel or found a late night spot. I don't know what they did, but we did not get to hang with Steve and Dirk, which I'll always be very sad about. But so they're shutting down inside and despite my best efforts to get them in, they leave and they're shutting down. And so Mark says, Hey, why don't you guys come back to my hotel room and we'll hang out a little bit more. And we're like, okay, sure. So they were staying at the Ritz. They're standing at the Ritz right downtown on, uh, on, on Broad or whatever. And um, so we're like, we went back and we were hanging out in Mark's suite at the Ritz Carlton, downtown Philly. And again, it's Russ and I, and then this other uh, young woman from, uh, I think it was ESPN, the magazine. So if I remember correctly, and we'd all had, we'd all been drinking. So it's possible that my memory is foggy, but my memory is that like, I think Mark might've had an interest in the young woman from ESPN, the magazine. But she seemed to have an interest in my coworker, Ooh. and I was the dude. I was like the engaged dude, just kind of sitting off to the side watching, going, "This is a funny interaction." <laughs> and um, and it was like nothing, nothing like problematic, nothing. Oh, sure. Nothing, um, yeah, it was like everybody was behaving themselves. It was just a very funny kind of subtle vibe. Vibe, uh, yeah. And but but so the kicker is that uh, Comcast Sports in Philly covers. They carry the Sixers games, and I think like a lot of local broadcasters. You know, they broadcast the game, whatever it ends at like 10. And then at like 1 or 2 a.m., they replay the game, right? Because it's <laughs> 1 or 2 a.m. And so we're in this like incredible hotel room and, and Mark Cuban, you know, team owner. And, and for whatever the vibe was going on, like he flips it on and realizes the game is on. So he starts rewatching the game. And we're kind of rewatching too and still drinking a little bit. I think he let us raid the mini bar and in the room and – um, but we're watching and like, he's getting angry because they lost and he's, and this won't shock you. He's starting to pay attention to the calls, and he's getting angry all over again about a game. They lost like three or four hours earlier. And he opens up his laptop and he's showing us this like super detailed Excel spreadsheet <laughs> with every rep in the league. Kirk, I'm not joking. I'm not joking. I... every rep in the league and every, and, and their record teams records with every ref, with every crew. Right. And he's pointing out how, like, I knew when we came in tonight we were going to get screwed because so-and-so was roughing. I have no, no memory who it was. Um, and it was so crazy to see him as, like, you know, like fun-loving, free, you know, spirited billionaire guy. But then all of a sudden, like, just diving back down into, like, hardcore, nerdy, basketball, 
number guy when it came to like rewatching his team and having to deal with the refs. And this preceded, you know, Cuban inspired Ralph Nader of the NBA needs to redo its officiating craziness, mm-hmm. um, whatever year that was. So yeah, that was, we ended up leaving and no harm was done. Um, but definitely a memorable night hanging out with cubes. Oh man, Ryan, I am so glad that you came on to both tell that story and talk to me in general. I will not take up any more of your time. I can't thank you enough for coming on. Definitely, man. It was fun. I appreciate it. All right. This has been uh, Kirk uh, Henderson with Mavs Moneyball, and this has been Kirk, your enthusiasm. Everybody have a good day. 